0: Okay, well, welcome to Go House, welcome to the retreat for the weekend, and hopefully some peace and quiet for you all. I want to give an introduction to what it is we're doing, the practice, this evening. And I'm going to speak, I'm going to do both of the elements of the weekend, one tonight and one tomorrow night, and speaking about them. So I'm going to speak about Gentle Joy tonight, but also I want to frame this within the overall aims of what we're what we're practicing for. Um, so my initial remarks will be about that and why on earth we're doing what we're doing. Sometimes it just very strange as it does to you. Sometimes you sort of sit there like this, what on earth I'm up to? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you just remind yourself that you're you're doing this, um, you know you're doing this in some senses to ironically enough wake up. Because this is what the Buddha spoke about waking up. And mm-hmm. The practices we're going to concentrate on over this weekend, the practice of gentle joy and the practice of equanimity, are actually practices which are aimed at waking us up and bringing us into a real and genuine connectedness with the world. If anybody ever thinks that meditation is escape, and probably a number of you have been practicing for a while, meditation is not an escape, it's not a cutting off, it's an actual engagement with the world. It's very, very important that it be that, and not be just some form of escapism. The Buddha made it very, very clear that the practice of meditation, a far better word, by the way, is cultivation, Bhavanar, which is the Pali word for it, bhavanar is constant is actual cultivation, growing something. So over this weekend we're attempting to grow some joy, um, and hopefully grow a little bit of equanimity as well. I won't promise you that by the end of the weekend. <laughs> but that's what we're engaging in. We're trying to grow something, to bring it into being, to manifest it in our lives. This is not just a a sort of a peek, a look at, a letting the mind have it as a nice idea. The whole of Buddhist practice in general is aimed at cultivating virtues, transforming the mind. It's a tradition which aims virtually solely at that, in transforming the mind. Um, Over its two and a half thousand year history, it's been entirely based on that idea turning the mind away from unwholesome, negative, destructive ways and transforming it into hopefully wholesome ways and and thereby allowing us to be with a bit more ease in this world than we normally experience. So it's about easeful being, but not a kind of fantasy um, sense of being. Not fantasizing about how we want it to be, but actually being with it as it is which is very difficult (laughs) a lot of the time. Let's not underestimate that. It's very, very difficult sometimes to be with the way things actually are. Um, It's far easier to escape into fantasy. It's far easier to get upset and to rail against the way the world is rather than just accept it as it's actually happening. Um, So the Buddha was very clear about this, that it's to actually transform the mind so that you can deal with what is thrown at us, you know, sort of the Shakespearean slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, um, that get thrown at us in our ordinary lives um, day to day you know, in our home lives, in our work lives we come across all sorts of situations which we can't control as I'm so fond of saying relax, nothing's under control because it isn't there is nothing within that range of our experience which is ultimately under our control or very few things actually so the Buddha was recommending us to wake up um, not become enlightened, but just to wake up. Um, the very word Buddha, just again putting it in setting, the very word Buddha is derived from a term in the original languages in Pali and Sanskrit, which means to wake. So the Buddha is an awakened one, not an enlightened one. Um, you and I are the sleepwalkers, um, walking through life, bumping into things often. And so it's this idea of waking us up that was at the forefront of the Buddha's message and waking us up to the propensity and the almost seemingly extremely <coughs> easy way that we move into misery. <sighs> we can move into misery very, very easily um, because our minds are unstable. It doesn't like the way things are in the world and so we set up patterns and dispositions which repeat themselves often over the course of our lifetime. They repeat themselves with, unfortunately, uh, a great deal of frequency. Um, he had a word for this, and sorry if I'm reminding some of you who probably heard this before, and perhaps I'm not for those who haven't. But he said this propensity to create problems out of what life throws at us as, um, is the creation of suffering. Um, the actual word doesn't mean that in the original language. It means something like unpleasantness. Um, we have a great disposition to create unpleasantness in our lives. Um, the word in the original language is dukkha, which is a lovely word because it actually basically means like a dirty space is what we inhabit a lot of the time, an unpleasant space. Um, originally it was used to refer to the hole in a cartwheel. Into which the axle fitted, and it was packed with dirt and grease and grit, and went round and round and round. I don't know if that ever sounds familiar to your lives, but that's often been the case in mine. Um, that the feeling, the feeling of circularity of going round and round and round in the same kind of space, and it's not very pleasant a lot of the time. So, the practice, this is what the practice is aiming at, is actually overcoming these unpleasant experiences. And notice, it's not overcoming the actuality, the facts that they're going to happen, and the Buddha really did point, very basically, to some existential facts of our life, such as sickness, old age, and death. Um, These are facts of life which are going to happen to us. But they do not have to be dukkha. They do not have to be unpleasant. They don't have to be miserable, and they don't ultimately, even on the strong end the sense of the word suffering, they don't have to be suffering. But we can actually move into a mental relationship with even those big existential facts as long as uh, together with all of the little things that happen in life, whereby we can live much, much more easefully, and we don't have to live in conflict and enmity towards others. Um, so that we can actually begin to move into a relationship with this world where we wake up and see it. I mean I was very struck by a, f- a little piece of a poem that many of you might know, T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, at the end of our, all of our exploring to return to the same place and know it for the first time. Um, This is very, very much at the heart of a lot of Buddhist practice, although he's coming from a Christian context, albeit influenced a lot by Eastern thought, um, to come back to this place and to see it differently. Now, the Buddha had many strategies and tactics which he recommended to us. Um, One was to pay attention to what is going on, to learn to pay attention non-judgmentally to what is happening to us, to see and view the contents of the mind in a way which doesn't cling but doesn't reject, to be in a relationship with it again which is not a relationship of conflict. All too easily, particularly with the negative sides of our minds, um, we can come into conflict with it, not want it to be that way. This doesn't have to be the case, and this is what the Buddha was really strongly indicating, that we can can come into a completely different relationship. So paying attention was very much at the heart of what the Buddha was recommending. Meditation practice, perhaps some of you have done this for a long period of time, I don't know. Um, But one of the most basic forms of paying attention is to pay attention to something very simple, like breathing, just paying attention, allowing and seeing what arises in paying attention to breathing. Um, in a way, this is peculiarly you know, Taoist in a sense. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Taoism. In Taoism, they say in doing nothing, everything gets done. And in a way, that's what's happening in meditation. We're In a way, doing nothing. We're doing nothing other than observing and seeing. But in a state of radical acceptance which is not something we do a lot of the time because we normally attach ourselves to pleasant thoughts and try and repress unpleasant ones. And so this is a mode of acceptance which actually the Buddha in one particular text describes as bare attention, being attentive to what is arising, allowing it to come and fully present itself within our field of awareness, but then not to inhibit it, to let it go to let it go on its way. And there's something that he talks about again and again and again through the texts. Um, And this is impermanence. And one of the most basic, wonderful models for impermanence is our minds. you have only got to close your eyes for a few seconds and you'll find that thought after thought is arising and passing away. Uh, The inhibitory factor behind it is when we get this sticky quality of mind and hold on to what it is or attempt to repress it. So this is one form of the process that the Buddha recommended. There is a lot more to it than just this, it's gaining insight into the way things are. But he also recommended another complete strategy, which is where we get to with this uh, particular weekend. This strategy um, was a strategy of developing wholesome, positive qualities of the mind. this weekend is really based on the latter two of the, what is known as Brahma-Viharas. The word Brahma-Viharas means abodes or dwelling places of Brahma. Now, one has to bear in mind that the Buddha was an Indian, so he's talking to Indian culture. Uh, the highest god in Indian culture at that particular part, period of time was known as Brahma. Um, and this kind of trinity and pantheon of gods within the Hindu religion. And this particular god um, was supposedly what one, when you were Hindu and attained some kind of emancipation or liberation, you went to dwell with Brahma. You went to dwell with him. Now the Buddha is using this as a metaphor. He's using it as a metaphor to say if one practices these four practices, of which these are the latter two, if one practices four practices, one will go and dwell with Brahma. He's using it as a metaphor for liberation, from liberating ourselves from misery, from unpleasantness, and all the sorts of things that we get up to in ordinary life. And in a way, what he's suggesting sounds quite simple, doesn't it? He says, for example, the way to gain this form of liberation, using these positive qualities, is to develop kindness, develop compassion, to develop what I'm almost retranslating here as gentle joy, often translated as sympathetic joy. Some of you might come across that. find that's a little patronizing, personally. But. And then finally, to develop equanimity and be able to appreciate uh, and take on board equally what is happening in life. And I'll go on to talk about that more tomorrow evening. Meta and karuna. These are the two words in the Pali language and Pali Sanskrit. Metta is this development of the quality of kindness in life, starting with oneself. Um, I'm often fond of saying, because the Asian teachers were appalled when they first arrived in the West and often found that actually most Western people didn't have a terribly good relationship with themselves, um, actually often didn't like themselves very much. Um, so they're quite surprised at this, and so the, the very foundation, a, a stage actually in the East, which isn't concentrated on uh, that much, is developing the quality of kindness towards yourself. Um, sometimes, in teaching long retreats here, we do a long period of trying to develop kindness towards yourself, and then ultimately, of course, extending this kindness. You know, once one begins to feel it even at a small or low level, perhaps I should say, towards oneself, then the possibility of being able to extend it to others becomes much greater. In other words, charity has to begin at home here for us to genuinely be able to extend kindness towards others. Another translation, by the way, of metta is friendliness, just to be friendly in this world. Out of that metta, out of that practice of kindness, um, we develop compassion, karuna. Compassion, or the word in its original language, karuna, means basically to turn outwards. Uh, actually to recognize that there are others out there in the world, for a start off, there's not just me, <laughs> I'm all isolated and cut off from everybody else but there are others out there in the world and those others too are going through something like dukkha they are going through suffering and misery and unpleasantness and all the things I've briefly, briefly mentioned at the beginning of this talk and out of these two factors is meant to arise the most difficult one which is gentle joy, this mudita, as it's known in the original language. And again, just to give you a feeling for this, this this word mudita has a quality of gentleness, tenderness, being suffused with joy and gladness, um, pleased to have a sense of gladness uh, in this world and appreciative of. It has all these connotations, it has all of these meanings. And it's particularly in relationship to others, being pleased and glad for others. And you can see now why it's a little difficult, because this is not our normal relationship. I'm really pleased that you've won the lottery. (laughs) Overjoyed. Um, So it's considered traditionally to be one of the most difficult things to develop in this world, but in a sense it's radically transformative if we begin to move into this form of joy, because it's around us, uh, despite how miserable sometimes we might feel, there is always joy in this world. There is always something good happening. And actually it means paying attention again and being able to see it. So it's, in a sense, born out of out of friendliness and compassion, initially. Over this weekend we're going to concentrate on the practices which are used to develop this particular virtue. The Buddha called the development of Mudita the mind deliverance of gladness. He put it very strongly, this is the mind deliverance which was achieved by gladness. In this world, so it's a very strong sense of connecting with others through others' joy. And, in a sense, also beginning to appreciate some of our own good qualities as well. This particular practice does not concentrate on self, it concentrates on others. By, as I say, trying to put us back into relationship with others as opposed to this kind of fragmented, cut-off feeling we often feel. I've engaged, been engaged over the last couple of weeks in teaching a long retreat here based just simply on, on development of kindness and compassion. And One of the things I've been trying to put across to some of the people on this retreat was just how difficult it is often in this world to remain isolated, to remain self. It's such an uphill struggle, isn't it? being self in this world. Um, I often think of the first person pronoun in English, the I. Look at it, it's almost terribly stick-like and on its own and very difficult to hold together in many ways. And the sense, our, our sense of being individuated, being cut off, is a terribly lonely business. And one of the big things you find with people even dwelling in massive conurbations such as the big cities is this sense of aloneness that many people find themselves. They're cut off from others. They don't, in a sense, interact with others on the most basic human levels. There is this aloneness. The German philosopher Martin Heidegger actually had a very good phrase for this. He said, we can only be alone if our most basic sense is to be with. Because, in other words, our basic sense of our existentiality is to be with others... That is why we feel alone. So aloneness actually tells us something, and when we have that sense of loneliness, tells us actually something about our most basic mode of being in the world. He also says very interestingly, of course, that to care for others is most when we feel ourselves in that mode of caring and being with. And so what I'm trying to present a picture for you of is this is connectedness. This is being connected to others rather than cut off. Um, others, by the way, if the message hasn't got through, are not out there to annoy you. <laughs> Which is often what happens, isn't it, in ordinary life. You to see people as kind of these irritations around us. Not always. Uh, you have to bear in mind, I'm talking in generalisation, so sometimes it becomes easier to slightly over it. But the important thing is, often our mode of being with others is irritation, annoyance, anger. Um, you know, as if they're out there to thwart your desires in some way. So, medita, gentle joy, is to put us in touch with others through their experiences. Now. Often in Buddhism, this is a strategy that's often used in, in trying to develop a feeling for what the quality is that is lacking, or the one you're trying to develop, you have to look at the negative sides. What stops us from being in that condition? What stops us from having this empathetic joy? That's another way of translating it, actually, empathetic joy with others. This, what I'm referring to, is gentle joy, where we get quite a list of things which really stop us being judgmental, comparing ourselves with others, how about simple prejudice, that's a good one, Um, demeaning others, envy, avarice, it's quite a good listening isn't it, and then there's boredom, (sighs) that cuts us off. Now, these are the traditional categories, in a way, which stop the development of this form of being in the world. And let's, let's take them, let's have a look at them a little bit. Judgment, being judgmental about others, thinking that you are right, your own way of life is right, your own way of being in this world is right, criticizing others as a result, I have a category, um, which many of you will know, in something called the Ennobling Eightfold Path, which is actually part of the path that the Buddha devises. And within that path uh, is a very good example, actually, of um, what I would consider to be the way that we cut ourselves off. It's under a category, actually, which is known as appropriate speech or right speech. And, but it actually defines it, again, by what it's not. This is not right speech, which is false speech, harsh speech, divisive speech. And how about this one for Goody, idle chatter. <laughs> None of those are right speech. You, know, and you can see the initial ones, you know, false speech, harsh speech, and divisive speech. They're all us off from others. And in many senses, even idle chatter is not a real form of engagement with others. I actually often joke about this and say, if you look at those four categories, is there much left to say (laughs) after that, you know? In other words, it's really trying to make you aware of the quality of speech that we bring uh, to our engagements with others, to our relationships with others. And like most of these things in, in Buddhist practice, there are really tools for engagement. So in other words, that category of appropriate or right speech becomes a way of looking at the way that we actually engage in speech acts in our lives. Um, And one can see with just very, very little inquiry, often um, what is right or wrong is very contextual. It might appear to be idle speech, but if you're trying to put somebody at their ease, it might not be. So there's many, many different ways of inquiring into this, so these are not absolutes. One has to inquire into them, one has to see into them. So, coming back to my original idea, judgment. Often our judgments are of the form of harsh speech, making harsh judgments. Now I think that's very easy to do because we often do it about ourselves don't we? We're extremely harsh with ourselves sometimes. I mean, almost it becomes a virtue. I'm only telling you what I tell myself. You know, in other words, because I'm beating myself up, I might as well beat you up as well um, with these forms of speech. So when we look at this quality, this quality of judgmentalism, of thinking you are right, you know, and actually um, comparing, which is another form, it com- becomes a form of conceit. This is the way it's used in Buddhist psychology. It becomes a form of conceit which we have, that we are doing the right thing and this person must be wrong. And always looking at others' lives as being somehow wrong, and you as the exemplar of what is right and everything that's perfect in this world. Now, as you can see, that is a very strong form of conceit that we're engaging in. Well, prejudice, for example, as well, the way that we have prejudicial judgments about others. We can have prejudice of all sorts. We we see in the world prejudice about race and sex and creed and all sorts of things which which are there. And again, this means looking at our own prejudicial attitudes because they are what cut us off from others. There can be no real relationship when there is prejudice enacted. The other becomes something like an enemy, for example. And we create our identity out of our prejudices. Um, often this is what we do. It's a form of both group and individual psychology, that we tend to look at another, see how they're different, and then form our identity out of that. You know? So often this goes into racial stereotypings. You know, stereotyping in other races, oh, they do that, don't they? And We do this. And so we feel a sense of, you know, solidarity with a group, perhaps, and have a group identity, and then find our identities within that group identity. You know, so these are all ways, if you like, of psychologically creating our loneliness in this world, our uh, being cut off. Well, there's also the common one, isn't there, demeaning others, you know? Demeaning them, making them lesser, you know, demeaning their achievements, perhaps. Yeah. Oh yes, you think they're really good, but... Yeah, and you can then imagine what goes in the place after the but. And so in those instances, again, we are cutting ourselves off. We are dehumanizing sometimes by de- diminishing others, in particular, diminishing others' achievements. Often to make ourselves feel good by that. You know? To make ourselves feel good. well, they think they're really good, but... You know, and again, the but says it all. How about this one, envy? That's something that's around a lot. I mean, we even have a phrase in English, don't we? Eaten up by envy. (laughs) And it really does sound corrosive if you're being eaten up by it. Uh, Almost like as if you're ingesting yourself here. And again, being eaten up in this way is to have no relationship because it's looking at the good fortune of others and simply being in this relationship of enviousness of not actually seeing their good fortune and appreciating somebody's good fortune. It doesn't have to be material, of course. It can be all sorts of aspects of their life which are working well, and one is envious. In fact, you don't want to be you, you want to be like them, in many ways. So it's an almost attempt to erase and elude yourself as well. Avarice, well, of course, well, that's a good distinguishing one for selfishness. You know, being avaricious, trying to get and accumulate as much as one can for oneself. You know, be that material goods, be that knowledge, be that whatever it is. Um, but as you can see, in the relationship that is established with a self in that way, again, there is no I-other relationship, not working very well, not certainly not working very well. The Buddha likened the notion of the self, out of which, of course, selfishness comes, as being like a dog tethered to a post. You just run run, round and round and round it. And this is actually what happens when our thoughts circulate about something. I would like to be like them. I want what they have. And this is if you're running round and round yourself. The self is a positively alienating factor in this way when it's seen as being something solid and something which is, you know, all of our, you know, our sense of being arises out of. It's that which is alienating, it's that which again makes us feel isolated and alone. So the question you have to ask yourself, even in, in wanting to practice something like Medita, do you want to be engaged or do you want to be alone? Do you really, really want to be engaged? Because the Buddha's plan or strategy for awakening was not about awakening for oneself simply. You know, it was about actually being with others in a wholesome, uh, wholesome fulfilling manner. Um, he even cleverly did this with the order of monks and nuns he set up, because they wanted to be on their own. <laughs> They they actually had this category in India called the renouncer, those who renounce the household life and run off and become bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, monks and nuns, basically. He said, "Okay, if you really want to join this order and renounce the world, I'm going to make you dependent for everything of your basic needs on others. (laughs) For your food, for your clothing, for your lodgings. Those have got to be provided by those people out there you're trying to evade. It was a a kind of contract he made and even to this day, Buddhist cultures, I'm thinking very, very much of countries like Thailand and Burma and Sri Lanka, are very much dependent, you know, those monks and ones are dependent for their existence on the generosity of the lay people who they were trying to run away from, often. So there's no running away in the Buddhist world, it's always about engagement. and its engagement with others. It's really, really in entering into that engagement. Now, selfishness, of course, selfishness is that which is about self in a very strong sense. And most of our negative emotions arise out, the solid, out of the solid sense of the self, which we often have, you know? Anger and jealousy and envy, of course. All of these are arising out of me, you know? me first me second me third and you might get a look in (laughs) if there's room so in other words the self sits like this massive spoiled child blocking our vision uh, of actually getting out into the world actually being in this world and then there's of course boredom which cuts us off in in the state of boredom Um, and it's very interesting that what the Buddha is suggesting you know, that boredom itself you know, can be overcome by the development of, of joy in this way. And you know, initially, that might seem puzzling, but if you actually think about it, what the Buddha is saying, "There's so much joy in things in the world. Why should you be bored? You know, even if we look at our own lives often and pay attention and it comes back to the issue where I started off initially and you actually begin to pay attention then the world comes to life. We lead because of habits and dispositions and, of course, the very, all of these conditions I've talk, spoken about are often there, they might not be very grateful, but they're often there in, in you know, kind of the undercurrent behind our daily lives of, of judgment and comparison and and comparing myself with others and demeaning others and all these ways. So really taking a close look. And you've got to be prepared to enter into taking a close look at your life. Um, one question I think is really important to so ask ourselves, and particularly, you know, it's good to do this a number of times a day, is what is going on? <sighs> because sometimes we're completely clueless as to actually what is really happening. You know, we haven't paid sufficient attention to that which is arising. The Buddha spoke about something called Yonasa Manasakara, which means wise attentiveness to what is happening. Most of what we do is the opposite, it's unwise non-attentiveness. We're distracted, and we like to be distracted. Remember the last category I spoke about? Boredom. What do we do with boredom? We try and fill it up as quickly as possible with distraction. Um, So much so that we get into this state of amusing ourselves to death, in a way, and just try and cover up uh, a kind of hole of acuity that can be in the heart of our lives. Can be, I'm not saying it is because we do appreciate joys and we have things arising, but we don't see that much of it. We don't see a lot of it. And sometimes, because we lack attention, we don't see where it can be in our ordinary life. So in this paying attention, one can see joy around. You can see it in your ordinary life. You know, this is this idea of being suffused with it. Uh, that we don't, in a sense, have to go out and create it because it's already there. And we have to become appreciators. We have to open our eyes and really begin to see it. We have to begin to see the what is going on. Now, the qualities which begin to support this condition, you know, of feeling joyful in this world, are things like gratitude, for example. Um, my favourite about the other two is very briefly kindness, compassion but gratitude and rapture as well are another two conditions which support the growth and the cultivation of a joyful attitude in this world and what I really mean by that and I've been stressing this even to the longer retreat which I've been teaching as I say for the last two weeks what I really stress about these practices is they become ways of seeing the world you know, we don't you know. At the moment, often we see the world with a very critical eye, very cut off. We don't see it in a friendly attitude. Sometimes we don't even see it in compassion. And compassion focuses on the pain of others. Now, unless one get too appalling a picture, life isn't simply pain. There is a lot of joy there as well. So, medita this gentle joy of being in the world is to. You know, to see the joy that is happening even when one feels in a painful and distressed condition yourself by paying attention whereas compassion in the other sense um, looks the opposite you know, when one is feeling rather egotistical and everything's going right in my world you see the pain around you you see the misery that is often there and so these are good balances they can kind of support each other they hold each other up these practices let's just talk a minute about gratitude, gratitude is a very important one here, um, being grateful, you know that phrase count your blessings yeah? that's mm-hmm. not a bad one to have there is a form of Buddhism in Japan, it's actually one of the Lama schools of Buddhism in Japan known as Shin Buddhism Shin Buddhism, the chief practice is the practice of gratitude you know? and it's a very powerful practice to actually look at what is good in your life rather than constantly bewailing the fact what is wrong with it. So easy to get into a kind of whinging state rather than seeing, and particularly I think here in the West, uh, certainly materially we seem to have a lot, and still are not happy, still not content. There is... A lot of discontentment, even in you know, the wealthiest people, sometimes uh, you know, the avariciousness, for example, which one will make them like a drug, want more, you know, and accumulation here. So gratitude is to be grateful for what you have, to literally uh, appreciate. It's a it's a state of appreciation for what you have got in your life, which is good, and this. I'm not trying to be idealistic and say you might not have mental turmoil and unease and anxiety and sometimes depression and these states. These are all mental states. But this process of beginning to look, in a sense, is beginning to look outside a little bit. You know, what happens a lot of the time is we're turned inwards, looking at ourselves, looking at the problems that we have. You know, My anxiety, my unhappiness, my depression, this... And we hold on to this very tightly and we reinforce the knot. The Buddha has a very powerful image, which is who tangled the tangle in the first place. And it was nobody else other than us, <laughs> most of the time. You know, We are tangling the tangle and we're in, a, in quite a knot here. Now, self-obsessing about the knot is not going to unravel it. <laughs> uh, and that is what we're engaged in a lot of times. You know, bear in mind, I'm speaking, as I say, in generalizations here. Not self-obsessing, beginning to look outwards. It's even said in the story of the Buddha, that the Buddha didn't initially have the impetus to teach. He just thought, what I've discovered and what I've actually um, experienced is so profound and so difficult, how can I begin to convey it to others? And in a sense that didn't actually mark his condition yet to being an awakened one, because the moment that marks his real awakening is when he turns out and sees that he has to teach, out of compassion for others, and out of compassion for all of the pain and the misery and the things that he sees around him. So it marks that movement from the inside to the outside. And soon we can begin to start looking outwards, then we will be wrapped up, internalized within ourselves. So gratitude is very important. There's a sutta, um, one of the ancient Pali texts, called the Mangala Sutta, which is, Mangala means blessings. (laughs) Look at your blessings, it's saying, that you have in this world. No matter how little you might have or how much you might have. No matter what distress you might have or how little distress. Just look at your blessings for being in this world. So, I hope I'm painting a picture for you here, which is about our interrelationships with others and the quality of those interrelationships with others. Joy is a quality of the interrelationship with others which arises by seeing, for example, people who are or have achieved something and joys which are in their lives by being appreciative of them. So the practices, and I'll go through this in the morning tomorrow in the instruction, the practices generally start off by thinking of somebody external to yourself who has something good going on for them in their lives and beginning to try and appreciate it, to beginning to begin to empathize with it. As you can see, with this attitude in the world, you know, with a lot of the good qualities, not just the suffering, Buddhism sometimes seems to concentrate so much on the, on the suffering, the pain and the misery. Mm-hmm. This is, I think, a beautiful practice because it actually concentrates on that which is good, which is going on in the world. Yeah? Um, and by beginning to accept others, to beginning to overcome that listening of things which I listed. Um, you know, like the prejudice for example and this is a quotation from one the poet he said if we could read the secret history of our enemies we should find in each man's life sorrow and suffering to dismiss all hostility mm-hmm. and all I can say is if we could live like that what a wonderful way to be and I was also struck many, many years ago in reading about the uh, Austrian philosopher Wittgenstein. And it was during the course of a discussion at Cambridge University during the Second World War and he was having with another academic and the academic said, you know, went into a kind of diatribe about all the horrors that were being perpetrated by Hitler in Nazi Germany. And Wittgenstein said, yes, but think about the suffering that man must have. You know, that is very difficult to do. We've seen it recently with the figure of Saddam Hussein. Um, You you have to think also about where a lot of these awful deeds arise from. The absolute horrors, and this is not to condone anything of that form, and not to make an excuse for it. But one can understand it when, when, as Longfellow says, you begin to understand perhaps the secret history of this particular person's life. We all, in a lesser sense, of course, from our pain, engage in things that we really would not wish to engage in. I often joke about this. and say, Most of us in the morning when we go off to work or whatever it is we're doing, go with an attitude of benevolence. Somehow it gets fouled up along the way, (laughs) generally. Not always. Um, But we don't start off I think with horrible attitudes and animosity towards others and enmity towards others, something goes on. And, of course, it's the resurgence, often, of our own pain at living, you know, the pain of being in the world, the difficulty of being in the world. And it is difficult. It is difficult. Nobody, there's nothing written into the contract that says it's going to be easy. Nothing that says it's going to be um, you know, a, a, a quiet stroll through life. We will have all these things happening to us. As a consequence of that, of course, we do spread our miseries around. We share them with others. We don't share a lot of the other things with others, but we do share a lot of our miseries, a lot of our distress. And so gentle joy, this joyful way of being in the world where we begin to appreciate and hold others dear to us, is a way of actually becoming engaged in the world in a less destructive manner where we don't walk through life leaving a, leaving a trail of debris behind us yeah, we, where we can actually walk through life um, in this gentle manner there's a lovely image It's used in uh, one of the Chinese sutras the sutras are the, again the texts it's an image of the Buddha and it's a lovely image it said he walked through life with bliss bestowing hands you yeah. And it's a nice image, even if you're not remotely interested in Buddhism and just interested in the meditation. But it offers, uh, offers and open up, opens up a possibility for being in this world, which most of us at this moment in time can only but dream of. However, we start with small things, and the small thing we start with is a development of an appreciative concern and caring for others, and this can be opened up by this joyful responsiveness to others. Now, on n- many occasions in daily life, I'm sure we have friends and family and people. Far easier to do with family, isn't it? Um, but we have people come up to us, perhaps not even a friend, come up and say something good has happened in their life, and we take a rather niggardly attitude towards it, you know? uh, and again reinforce our sense of cut-offness through perhaps one of those categories which I, which I listed. So, this is an opening of a journey, um, a journey which is, in a sense, taking us from an unawakened state to waking up to what is around us. And this is waking up to a degree of joy and relaxation and ease of being in the world which would affect every dimension of our lives, every dimension of our lives, by helping us to see life in a completely different way. So I said, "I really encourage you to hear this. These are not just kind of any old virtues to be developed, but they actually become ways of seeing the world and ways of waking up." I'll finish there <laughs> this evening. Okay. Well, we have a little bit of time. If you want to ask me some questions, I'm sure you must all be very tired. So you're probably dying to get to bed and me to stop talking. <laughs> but if there are any questions, please do ask them. I'll do this again tomorrow night and we'll have some time perhaps during the day that I might, might open up for a few questions about the practice. Don't worry if you don't have any. <laughs> yes, um, please. <clears throat> Interesting, I think, how somebody coming up and saying to you um, something good's happened to me. And the response in me often depends on how much good's happening to me in my life. Mm-hmm. So if I feel I'm, you know, mm-hmm. things are going well for me, then I'm often happy when things are going well for others. Mm-hmm. But when in my life they're not, that's when I start to feel that. So it seems very conditional. Yes. You know. and also um, sometimes there's a feeling of. Uh, sorry, I'll, I'll have a sentence mm. but Yeah, it just seems very conditional as well. That, that means. Yes, I'm talking. This is this is really what the movement of this joy is about. It's unconditional. Yeah, you know, it doesn't matter. I and mean, this is what the aim of the practice is: is to move from that. If you don't, if things are not going well. You don't feel that things are going well in your life. You can still at- extend a joyful attitude towards others. Mm. You know, so it becomes this unconditional way of being in the world. Because obviously, um, in our normal experience, it's nearly always related back to I, how am I feeling, you know, before I will be able to, even perhaps even just listen to another. Sometimes. We're so full of ourselves, that's where I'm putting it, you know, we're so full of ourselves, we can't hear, we can't see, you know, sometimes we can't even taste and touch. Yeah, so, <laughs> and I don't idealise it or romanticise it at this stage because it is a gentle movement, a movement which takes time and practice. But it's a movement in opening up, no matter what is going on, you know, for us. Because actually, in the end, it's a lesson of attachment to that I, to that self, which thinks it's going through this experience or that experience, or, or it might be you. Know, this person is going through experiences but I don't have to make that the constant source of my reference in being in the world and that's what's really being opened up by so as I say it's it's a severely radical engagement in fact all the Barman Fahiles all of these four things let me just list them again for those who are not familiar with them of friendliness, compassion this gentle joy and equanimity. All of these are radical acts of being. (laughs) They really are radical. They're radical acts of love as well, both for ourselves and others. And I don't mean that in the self-indulgent sense of of self here. They are, if you like, as the Buddha actually very strongly puts it, they're often swimming against the tide. The tide of what's happening in contemporary life certainly isn't most of those things. In fact, we're encouraged, aren't we, to be judgmental, to be critical, to be envious. I mean, a lot of advertising is work based on that. to generate (laughs) avariciousness or envy about somebody's got this and therefore I'm going to have to aspire to get it and all that stuff. So we really are beginning to enter into going against the mainstream. Now, the one thing, perhaps, if we reflect on it even just for a few minutes, going with the mainstream, however great or however little you do it, doesn't bring as much happiness. (laughs) It just does not bring as much happiness. Um, The happiness comes from, as I say, real engagement, really being with others, caring for loving others, um, entering into joyful relations and things like that. This is where the happiness comes from. It doesn't come from all of the things that are proffered by our material societies and all the stuff that goes on with them. And I think if you just reflect on that, just a little, you will see that that mostly is the case. Here. So this is a very, very radical act <laughs> that we're engaged in. Yeah. Um, I can't I hear what you're saying about... The Sort of engaging with others, and something I've been doing for a long time without really having the language you put to. But mm-hmm. one of the things, the side effects I found for me, and I find it often through kind of engaging, and relating to other people and opening up and listening to them, is that um, I find it quite easy to kind of to lose my sense of self mm-hmm. and to kind of to lose my viewpoint. When I'm in a relationship or when I'm opening up to other people, yeah. so I was just wondering how that kind of fits into what you're, what you're saying because you talked about self and how it gets in the way. Yes, but to navigate my life, I do also need you know I find that if I lose too much of my sense of self, then I'm I'm rudeness. Yes, I mean. I don't want to go into too much detail this evening about this, but it's, it's, quite, it's quite an interesting question you're asking, because in a way what Buddhist thought sort and of practice tries to make you aware of is there is something, there's a process which is called self which is going on. There's not a self. There's not a fixed point, a fixed thing, in other words. And so what we're trying to do is, in a sense, have an awareness of that process without overly identifying with it, which turns it into something being much, much more solid. Now, in this set of practices, in these practices in general, that's why you develop and extend compassion to yourself, kindness to yourself. Having, I think, fluidity, for example, of things like opinions and that is possibly a good thing. You know, of not being too attached. In fact, one of the great fetters, as it's often put, is opinionatedness in this world. We have all kinds of views about things to which we are dogmatically tied because they are related to our sense of ourself as an identity. In a way, what we're learning to live with and come to is holding this self thing, which is a verb, you know, we talk about the self as a verb rather than as a thing, this selfing, as a much um, as a much looser construction you know, a much much looser construction, thereby inhabiting it quite differently um, and being with others and not having to constantly have this self in the relationship now that means in a sense strengthening practices which will help love kindness compassion towards oneself all help those help that self in process and help to sense. To stop that stare or stem that sense of losing oneself altogether. No, it's not about losing oneself in others, it's about being for others, in a way. That's how I would describe it. Yeah. But perhaps I'll say a few more words about this tomorrow night because it's quite an important facet of what we're doing. So from our understanding you're saying a kind of duality. So what you're giving out and acceptance to others, you should also be giving to yourself. You should. Most definitely. Certainly, when it comes to kindness and compassion, these are to be cultivated for yourself as much as others. And as I said, you know, charity starts at home. We can't begin to extend it fully to others unless we're doing it for ourselves. Yeah. In other words, it becomes... And this is why you know, carers, for example, get burned out because they're giving, 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 giving and there's been nothing to nurture and sustain them at all now there's a the behalf actually in, in the languages in, in uh, Tibetan and Sanskrit which is actually idiot compassion <laughs> it's just, just a giving out without any sustaining retaining any sustaining forces for oneself you know? um, and you just end up with burnout which is not a good thing yeah, in a sense, that's a way of losing oneself. But I'll say a few more words about this tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> I've been practicing something like the counting of blessings mm. for a little while now, and it very profound. It does make you more and more conscious of how generally bad news seems to sound better than good mm. And but indeed, a news. Program that was devoted to good news would feel terribly corny, slashy, cloyers, but, you know, and, and it's almost mm-hmm. as though the news sits beside the adverts and they feed each other. The adverts make you dream of a better world, and the news tells you how bad it really is mm-hmm. and thus feeds our desire and mind. I don't know, but how do don't you see a relation with some of what you're talking here? Why is it in our culture that we are so fascinated? It's just, it is no news is good news. I think that's, that's the basic, I think you hit the nail right on the head. Uh, in many senses, I think for people who are really seriously practicing, and I don't mean to suggest in any way burying your head in the sand, but this constant obsession we have for the news just adds to anxiety, fear, um, sometimes aggression, for example. You know, all of these negative emotional states are often evoked by... I mean, talk about the most unrelaxing thing you could do. The last thing before going to bed is to watch the news. It seems to me not a terribly wise way of using one's attention. I mean, most of us would get sufficient enough news if we watched it once a week, or looked at a paper once a week. In a lot of instances, also adds to a feeling of impotence of not being able to do things. Now, I'm not suggesting we bury our head in the sand. Because it's the balancing of compassion for other sufferings. That's right. And awareness we have to have an awareness of it, but one of the things we all know is that no matter whether we don't, if we don't read a newspaper or we don't watch a news we can still hear about it, because somebody's going to tell us about it. <laughs> you know, in most instances, that's what's going to happen. So we don't actually have to actively go out and pursue it a lot of the time. Um, I think you have to, again, look at how one utilizes something like the news with all its negativity uh, in a wise fashion. If it's disturbing and upsetting and all the things I personally often think it is, um, then one has to look look at it within the overall scheme of your life. Um, And if it detracts from seeing some of the good dimensions of life, of which there's a massive amount, I mean, let's cannot underestimate, there's a massive amount of people doing good things, probably more people doing good things than there are doing bad things in this world. Now, the Dalai Lama is very fond of saying the basic condition of human beings is good. Yeah? Their basic motivation is good. Yeah? There are very, actually think about it, there are very few genuinely absolutely malicious people in this world, yeah? there are very few of them and even if they have they perhaps have that secret history that Longfellow talked about so actually where are they coming from they're coming from their pain and suffering that should generate compassion for them, not hatred Um, so not burying our heads in the sand but utilising what we know wisely and beginning to see the blessings around us in some degree of gratitude and it would make life I don't know how to put this, because I don't want to to sound corny, but it it makes life a lot more rich. It makes it a richer diet, rather than this kind of rather poor diet of negative news that we hear all the time. If you begin to focus in on things, you'll find that there is meaning and sustenance in little things in your life. Just the little things in your life. Not the massive things like like, winning the lottery or something like that, but you'll find the sustenance and meaning in those little day-to-day phenomena that we um, that we have around us. On the feeling, Virginia Woolf has a wonderful phrase for this. Um, Nothing Buddhist here at all. Virginia Woolf. She talks about them as being moments of being, and she talks about moments of being as being like this. The feel of cold water on your skin on a hot day. Yeah? The feeling of the wind and the smell of apple blossom. Yeah, these are moments of being, yet they can so easily pass us by and we don't have gratitude for them sometimes. For those little things which add a richness and a colour and a dimension to life which makes us feel far more integrated and far less cut off from it. It's like, it can coming, st- to it's like coming to your senses. Yeah. yeah. There's a very famous phrase, I think you might have heard me say it before, a very famous phrase by Fritz Perls, which is, lose your mind and come to your senses. <laughs> yeah. So much of our the meaning of our life is embodied, and it's not, obviously, to, to literally do that, but so much of the meaning of our life is embodied in our sensory perceptions, which go unnoticed. Yeah. Smell, for example taste. One of the wonderful things about coming on retreat is you get a chance to do these things because you're in silence. To actually eat your food and begin to taste it. Instead of engaging in a conversation or listening to the news or reading a paper or all the things we do often which distract us away from just that simple sensory experience of actually tasting the food, feeling the texture of it, whatever it is. And that's when meaning is embodied in those simple things. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I was just going to ask a more practical question, sure. really, about the meditation that we'll be doing and mm. sort of how it re- relates to what you've been saying. Because um, the only meditation I've ever done, really, is sort of mindfulness meditation, like concentrating on your breath yeah. and yeah. your senses, like you are talking about, you know, coming alive by experiencing what you're experiencing now. But how do you relate that kind of meditation to... Um, to the kind of sort of joy and compassion and loving kindness that, that you talk talked about? These are different, they're just different approaches, that's all, they're all approaching the same thing. So, sort of, looking terms of sort of a one hour sitting or... 45, the the sittings are generally four to five minutes here. Um, I mean, I'll be giving full instructions in the morning as to what, no. we're, what we're actually going to do. And it's very simple, it's very, very simple. There's going to be some phrases which I'm giving you to utter, which you can play around with and do with what you want with them. Um, and I'll give you the instructions about what you're going to do because there's categories that you're going to take various individuals, for example somebody who's really close to you thats an easy one to start with <laughs> somebody you really like, perhaps love you know, really feel the joys in their life single out something which is really good going on for them, perhaps and begin to feel it. You know? and then you're going to extend it into other categories such as more difficult categories like a neutral person somebody who has no strong you know, links with, or somebody who is called the difficult person. <laughs> I think the word difficult covers a multitude of sins. <laughs> but we're going to start with certain categories. Yeah, that's what we're going to do with both of the meditation practices. So, yeah. But I'll say more about that in a moment. Okay. Well, I think it's always time. What we'll do is we'll just sit quietly for ten minutes and do a very simple practice, just a very simple breathing practice, just to finish off the evening. And for the first meditation session in the morning, the really early meditation session at quarter to seven, I'd like you to, to do this as well, which is just, we're just going to be following the breath, that's all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.